The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyad. This conversation with Paul is going to be much more around longer-term investing, particularly around microcaps, uh, talking about from a, a Canadian perspective, how to look at microcap opportunities. So we'll get some good discussion on the idea here. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Paul Andreola, who's the publisher of Small Cap Discoveries, has uh, a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Paul, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? Where are you located? <laughs> yeah. And uh, how did you get interested in the uh, in the microcap, small cap space? You got it. So yeah, Paul Andriola, Small Cap Discovery. Small Cap Discoveries is, uh, like you said, a newsletter. We like to think it's a little bit more than that. We've got a, a growing membership of investors that sort of like like what we do and and are sort of crazy enough to invest in the microcap space and quite frankly, sort of help with due diligence. It's almost like a crowdsourced due diligence process that we go through to to find and own these stocks. As far as my background, I live in Vancouver, Canada. So, you know, most, most of the stocks we look at are Canadian listed. That doesn't mean we don't look at U.S. listed microcaps as well. As far as background, uh, of all things, I actually studied construction management in, in college, but uh, went on to more of a financial sort of exp- uh, background. Was a financial advisor, investment banker for a short period of time, and also cut my teeth as a founder of two startup technology companies. Also spend time as director of a couple of public companies. So I think all in all sort of gives me a, a well-rounded experience and background that helps a lot when I'm looking at these, these sort of smaller micro cap companies that always come with sort of, you know, a little bit of hair and warts on it. So that, that's a little bit about me. All right. Let, let's do a little comparison against U.S. markets for a moment before we get into micro caps. How does the, the number of stocks in Canada compare to the number of stocks in the U.S.? And when we talk about market capitalization, Mm-hmm. Are there, on average, smaller companies that make up most Canadian stocks versus U.S., or are we looking at a similar kind of makeup in terms of that that capitalization? Well, for, I think you got to understand sort of the, the makeup of the Canadian capital markets is very different than the U.S. The U.S. and, and quite frankly, a lot of other you know sort of more advanced countries have a much more robust venture capital sort of industry, whereas in Canada we have a, a really a public market uh, venture capital industry. So we tend to get a lot of very, very small companies get, that, that go public, whereas in, in the States, you guys tend to see companies wait until they're significantly bigger before they go public because they have that that capital that they can access, you know, from, from venture capital and private equity and things like that. So as far as numbers, I would argue that there's probably the same amount of micro caps in Canada as are in the U.S., but once you add in all the other larger companies, you know, there's certainly there's at least 10 times more listings in the U.S. than we have in Canada. Is the is the process to going public, if you're a Canadian company, less cumbersome than in the States? And that partially explains why it's got that more kind of VC almost mindset or approach mm-hmm. to looking at these these stocks? Yeah, no, I mean, the history of the Canadian exchanges was really around, you know, the, the gold rush and the different uh, mineral exploration companies way back, you know, 100 years ago that went up up into the mountains and tried to find something. So th- these were predominantly very high risk, relatively small companies that were getting listed. And the, the, the exchanges really were built around these smaller, sort of more volatile and riskier companies. So it is easier. To, I, I wouldn't say necessarily easier. I mean, the, the filing requirements, I've, I've I've sort of taken companies public both in Canada and the U.S. And I know 
from a, from a filing standpoint, it's it's very similar, but the costs are significantly lower to to list in Canada and to maintain a listing. I mean, and it's not just filing costs and, and listing fees, but there's all sorts of other costs associated with it. And, and one of the big ones is actually DNO insurance. So directors and officers insurance in the U.S. is is at least ten, if not fifteen times what you pay in Canada. So it just gives you a sense of you know the the expenses some of these small companies would take on by by either listing in Canada or, or thinking of listing in the U.S. And how how robust are those are new listings? Meaning, do you tend to see a fairly consistent number of new companies coming to market, or is it is it not really that much of an expanding pool of new companies? Well, it sort of depends. If there's a hot sort of sector, like we, we've seen everything from cannabis to blockchain to you know certain metals when they're hot. When you get that, the, the fact that you can list relatively easy means you're going to get a lot of those companies get listed very quickly. So we we see that up here in Canada, where it just you know if there's if there's a bit of a a rush or excitement around a sector, you see a lot of these companies get listed. The, the problem is, and for most investors, that most of these listings, you know, they're not super high quality. You're getting companies that are listing because they're trying to take advantage of the hype rather than, you know, really running a, a sort of a more significant business. So it comes and goes. I guess the answer is it comes and goes. It depends on how robust the market is and, and how robust a certain sector is. That point about taking advantage of hype is not just a phenomenon in Canada. <laughs> right, that's phenomenal. No, I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it all over the place. But it's just it, it, the, the fact. I mean, you guys had the OTC market in the, in the U.S., and that is sort of a you know a little bit more similar to the venture capital markets we have up here in Canada. But there is still much more streamlined opportunities here in Canada to get something listed. And, and the way a lot of companies get listed now are these reverse takeovers, almost like the SPACs you guys have, but significantly smaller. So the fact that these companies are sort of there looking for a project. To, to finance, you, you see a lot of these listings getting done that way. And again, it's just, it's a function of, you know, if there's interest and money and a theme, then you're going to see a lot of companies get listed. Right. And that does share a lot of similarities, again, to sort of VC investing. I had Ian Castle not too long ago talking about mm. that, that idea too. And yeah. that, that I want to focus more on that hype point because mm-hmm. that is, again, a parallel with VC investing versus microcap. It's hard to really know if an idea you know is really valid if the management team really has the chops to execute so from a process perspective how do you go about trying to filter out the hype because yes you can make money oh, in yeah. trade right but if you're talking about yeah. longer term investing which 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 is critical when you have something that's illiquid you've yeah. got to really make sure that you don't fall for the yeah. Numbers. Yeah, no exactly so we do the exact opposite sort of chasing the the, the, the hot stocks we we are, you know, we screen for fundamentals. We screen for revenue and, and earnings growth. So if you're, if if you if you stick to that kind of criteria, you probably you you remove about ninety percent of the companies that that you'd be looking at. So yeah, we we avoid the hype as much as we can. And, and surprisingly, what tends to happen is if you're buying stocks that are cheap and they're growing, they you know they got real businesses. Sooner or later, they actually grow into some hype, right? They grow into a sector. It all of a sudden gets hot because they're hot, right? So it's, yeah, it, it is important to try to stay away from the hype, but we do it simply because we're, we're screening for fundamentals. And, and as far as how we actually screen, like we don't, we don't use software. We, we do it the old school way where we'll, we'll, up here in Canada, we've got CR, which is the filing system. You guys have Edgar down in the States. My partner and I, we go through every single CR filing in Canada every day. So we, you know, when we see something that, that hits some sort of inflection point in, in their income statement, you know, we, we tend to find it very early. And, and the reason why we don't use software is quite frankly, every now and then one sort of slips through the software and those are the ones you really want. I, you know, I've, I've got an example. One of, the, one of the biggest wins I've ever had was something that, that we picked up by just, you know, reading a CEDAR filing and it just never showed up in a stock, a stock screening program. So, you know, it's important that you sort of put in the work and uh, stick to a process that allows you to sort of repeat, repeat the sort of the criteria search. And um, lo and behold, you'll find stuff that uh, it could be, you know, wealth generating beyond your beliefs. All right. Now, you mentioned that you said, I think, 100 years ago is when you had a lot of these these companies that are more on the gold rush side of things come mm-hmm. in. Let's let's talk about broadly the, the makeup of sectors, right? When you look at mm-hmm. the Canadian markets overall and then. Specifically within microcaps, 
if there are certain sectors which are more prevalent than others. Yeah, so Canada is still, what is it, the, the hewer of wood and, you know, minor rocks or whatever. It's a lot of resource industries still, you know, a lot of listings that are resource extraction businesses. So everything from oil and gas to oil and gas service companies to, you know, lithium is hot and uranium and all those sort of things. So there's a lot of those. But I'd say about 30% are non-resource extraction and they cover everything. And the beauty of a lot of these microcaps is you can't really necessarily fit them in a category. They're, they tend to be somewhat eccentric or, or, you know, fit into niche businesses. And, and that's actually something that we think is, is a positive. But you've got everything from tech. You've got, you know, biotech. You've got, you know, ESG, you know, a little bit of everything. You'd be surprised at, at the diversity of different companies we have listed up here. Yeah, and I think I think most people would probably make the association that it's much more to your point, resource you know extraction driven, primarily oil and gas, mm-hmm. you know, lumber, which I always talk about. But that, that's a little bit interesting to me to think about that from a micro cap perspective, because I would think that when you're talking about natural resources, it would be only a few like players that really are are kind of running the show and doing the extraction. Yeah. Are there basically a lot of small companies that? have very hyper-localized, you know, places where the extractions take place. Talk about that. Oh, okay. So, no, there's, there's really two distinctions in the mining side is there's the miners that actually, you know, get the stuff out of the ground. Then there's the explorers. So companies that, you know, will spend a whole bunch of money trying to find something. And then they, you know, it's unlikely they'll ever have the wherewithal to mine it, but they'll sell their property to a, a major miner. So there's a, there's a plethora of, of small exploration companies that are actively out there trying to, you know, poke holes in the ground and, you know, crossing their fingers, hoping they find something. So now, one thing I'd bring up is that I think that's one of the big advantages for small investors when they really take a look at the sort of the makeup of the Canadian market is because it's so dominated by resources the expertise, the analysts, the the brokerage firms, the you know all the you know sort of research dominates that sector, right? So you don't you don't tend to have a lot of analysts that specialize in you know wood products, for example, right? Or in in software or life sciences. There's very few, so there's not a lot of data that you're sort of competing with when you go and find your own data. If that makes sense? Yeah, no, that the, 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 that's an interesting point. Okay, so so. More on the real asset side of things, mm. more on the resource extraction side of things. Talk about how Canada has, in terms of the investment in commodities, has, has how has Canada fared relative to the U.S.? Because there's one of these constant topics in these spaces is this idea that there's underinvestment broadly across mm-hmm. the gas space, across metals and materials. Mm-hmm. Is there a similar dynamic when it comes to Canada itself? Yeah, I, I would definitely say there is. I think, you know, it's rare that what happens in the U.S. doesn't happen up here in Canada. So the, the underinvestment in everything from energy to, you know, basic materials, you know, industrial metals, things like that. I think, I think that's a worldwide phenomenon where, you know, there, there's, there's this move towards ESG and, and, you know, taking rocks out of the ground is, is bad for the environment. I think that there's a lot of that in, in places like Canada and U.S. So now the, the interesting thing is, although a lot of these explorers and these mining companies in Canada are listed in Canada, that doesn't mean they're operating in Canada. They may be operating in Argentina or Thailand or who knows where. So, you know, the, the, the expertise that we have up here in mining and extraction, I think it lends itself to these companies going anywhere in the world where they can, they can sort of operate. So, but yeah, I, you know, clearly there's been an underinvestment. I think that's part of the reason why we're dealing with some of the issues around, you know, higher energy prices and, and metal prices and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, you know, historically, you know, cure for those sort of issues are high prices and we're starting to see that right now. So is there a, uh, and, and this kind of goes back to micro cap investing, because presumably if the makeup, I think you sort of allude to the study that 70% is resource mm-hmm. in the resource uh, segment that. There would probably be quite a bit of consolidation, right? As as high prices and commodities on average stay elevated, I would think that a lot of these micro cap resource companies could be takeover targets. Yeah, they they usually are, and that's how it usually works. So if if a if a company goes and finds a project and drills it out, and it looks like it's going to be economic, you know, ninety percent of the time it, it'll get bought out by a larger player. Now that's almost the way the business works. The, these junior explorers, they go out, they spend all the money, and you know, it's very high risk. 
And the ones that are successful, you know, the majors will come and buy them out. And it's, you know, the, the, the majors look at it as a, a farming system, right? They, they just pick the ones that they want once they see the results are there and, and off they go. And then, you know, Junior Explorer, the, the management team will sort of regroup and try to do it all over again. And is that acquisition process uh, easier to go through than, by comparison, companies acquiring others in the states? What's that? What does that look like in terms of the the, the speed with which some company can come in and actually gobble up a smaller company? Well, I, I guess it all depends on if it's a friendly takeover, or if it's you know more hostile. If friendly takeovers are done very quickly, and a lot of times it may not even be a full takeover company, but it might be a, a purchase of the project, right? So a big big cash lump sum, or maybe cash and chairs or something like that. But it, it is it is a sort of a, a regular occurrence in the industry and it's been very streamlined up here. So again, apart from the standard things you have to do, you got to get shareholder approval, you got to, you know, clearly board approval first and then shareholder approval and you got to go through all those mechanics. But it's very, very similar to what happens in the States. But as far as the, again, the resource side, it, it ha- it's, it's almost built into the system to be done this way. So it's relatively uh, painless. Okay, now uh, I'm going to take it to macro for a moment because I think it's yep. it's an interesting discussion. So the <laughs> there, there's this old line that there's really only one central bank and it's the Fed and everyone follows the yep. Fed, right? Yep. Are, are Canadian stocks more sensitive to Fed policy than, than the Bank of Canada's yes. policy? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Absolutely, hundred percent. That's my. That's completely my belief. If you've been watching the Canadian dollar, you can see what's been happening in the Canadian dollar because of. Well, I guess every currency against U.S. dollar has been doing the same thing. But we are beholden to the U.S. in a lot of ways because they're a major trading partner. Our, you know, cross-border transactions are very regular. So, absolutely, I, I'm quite convinced that it's the Fed that that if the Fed sneezes, we catch a cold for sure. Which is interesting, right? Because you because you, you mentioned currency, right? Part of the, the discussion around market cap is related to the likelihood of where the revenue comes from being mm-hmm. more centralized <laughs> domestically or not, right? So smaller cap companies, right. because they are smaller by nature, probably have more of the revenue domestically than multinational large caps. So I, I would think that when you talk about micro caps in Canada, they would be much more sensitive to the domestic economy and domestic central bank policies mm-hmm. because they wouldn't be as affected by currencies. But but maybe I'm wrong. Talk, talk through that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, listen, I mean, there's a lot of Canadian manufacturers now that are loving the fact that the Canadian dollar has dropped as much as it has against the U.S. And, you know, we've got one of the, well, the largest economy in the world at our border. And, you know, we we take advantage of that. So there's I think there's a lot of manufacturing upside here in Canada because of that. I, the, you know, the micro caps, I think, are more driven by their individual sort of a- a- atmosphere or ecosystem that they're working in than than the greater macro. Right. Because so many of these companies are, are niche. You know, they might be innovating a, a sector. You know, they might be you know bringing out a new widget that that is going to sort of override any economic issues. So I think there's some safety in that a lot of these micro caps are just doing something newer, better, stronger, faster type of thing. So there's less economic impact on these things. However, you know, share price gets gets beat up just like anything else, regardless of, of underlying economics. And I think, again, I think that's where the big opportunity is, is these mispricings. Right. And presumably that also means that you're not going to have that sort of school fish movement where everything moves in a similar way. It's not necessarily rising tide lifting old boats because it's less beta. It's more idiosyncratic. Yeah. And, and there's so many other factors at play here too. Like one of the things that I've noticed is clearly the last year and a half or so, like most, most micro caps that I follow have actually been in a bear market for about a year and a half. So they, they've had their wash. Uh, and, and, not, and not to drop it, but, but I'm glad you say yeah. that because I've, I've been on that, on that kick for, Many, many, many months. The bear market really started February of 2021. 
That's when breadth yeah. peaked. That's when arc, yeah. arc peaked. That's when emerging markets peaked. When small caps started going sideways. So yeah. this 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 is important, I think, for the audience because part of identifying where there might be a turn in a cycle is figuring out the length of time the existing cycle has already been taking yeah. place. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And so, so yeah, so the, the fact that that's happened, you're seeing, you know, so many of these stocks have washed out. So many of these, so much of the capital has kind of disappeared. And, and you know, one of the things that we track as close as we can is where sort of institutional money is going, right? We, we, we say it's either up market or down market. And, we, you know, we've got this, call it a bear market, call it whatever you want right now. But the, the sentiment in the microcaps has been as poor as I've seen in the last, you know, 15 years or so. You've got institutional money that is way up market because they they have to they have to stay liquid they got to keep you know enough cash they got to be if they're going to hold any equities or, or any assets it's got to be something they can turn over very quickly and then you got retail investor the average retail investor reads a headline and you know sees a CPI print that's too strong and all of a sudden they they freak out and they're they're gone right so who's left to buy these microcaps there's very very few so you, you're getting this real disjointed mispricing. To almost anything, like the economy, you know, is one thing, but the actual fundamentals of the business are completely disjointed because, or the price to that fundamental is disjointed because there's just nobody buying these stocks, right? So it's, I mean, in again, in the last 13 to 15 years, I haven't seen an opportunity this good in the microcap space quite well. No, and I think that's also, that, that is a critical point too, right? It's like when you have an environment where people are fearful the institutional mm-hmm. players have to go for liquidity because they don't know mm-hmm. when their underlying assets might sell out. So yeah. that that creates these these real mispricings because of a momentary emotion in a cycle that may mm-hmm. not last as people uh, as long as people think, right? And that goes right. into a lot of these other studies, like you know the Swenson model, this idea that there's this illiquidity premium when it comes to you know VC type of investment or even mm-hmm. micro. So your argument would be that the illiquidity premium at this point is probably you know. Very, very elevated. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is, yeah, the the illiquidity discount, like the pricing discount, is right. okay, correct. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's a significant discount. I, I'll, I'll, there, there's companies we're finding right now that are trading at four or five times earnings. They're growing revenues anywhere sort of from thirty to seventy percent. Some of them are issuing dividends. You know, they're very illiquid. There, there's hardly any buyers, right? They're, but but if you look at that, and yes, the you know the markets themselves might go down, but when you're comparing them to their bigger sort of cousins, you're wondering why the exact same metrics aren't being applied. And historically, the, these microcaps always traded a premium to the, the metrics that the big companies have. But I think there's a whole bunch of factors that play into why we're seeing discounts down, down at these levels. But mathematics plays out, right? So sooner or later, if you, if you continue to trade cheap, either somebody buys you out or somebody finds you or something happens and you know, I, I've been at it for 30 years. Sooner or later, if something's cheap, it doesn't stay cheap for very long. You said something that was interesting there, which actually took me back to some studies I, I had read many, many years ago that basically made the point that if you want to consider buying microcap or very, very small companies, mm-hmm. that you actually want to look at the largest competitors because it, it, what ends up happening is you end up having momentum first in the largest competitors. Yes. And then it, yeah. that, that information, right, from that momentum of those large competitors then filters through with a lag to the yeah. microcap company. So in other words, if you're if there's a particular industry which is really on fire, microcaps mm-hmm. may not be the first to respond to it. But you noticing the large caps are on fire now means that the microcaps can be with a lag yeah. and that's where the opportunity is. Hundred percent. So that that's one of the exercises we go through. Is we actually we track a lot of fifty-two week highs on Nasdaq. We try to see what categories are starting to see a large number of of new highs. And what was interesting, an example was about three or four months ago, we started to see a lot of stocks that were or Nasdaq stocks seeing new highs were electronic component companies. So companies that made equipment for electrical systems, for telecom systems, all these things. So, you know, you look at a Nasdaq company that's growing rapidly, hitting a 52-week high, you might be paying 30, 40 times earnings. Then we come up to Canada and see if there's any comps. And we're finding that, you know, there are, they're smaller, but they're trading at six, seven times earnings, right? So, you know, the sector is getting hot, but, you know, the big ones always lead and the small ones always sort of catch up afterwards. But when you, when you get the confirmation of seeing the big sort of the generals in in the army moving, you know, the soldiers are going to be right behind pretty quickly. 
And by the way, that's that's counter to pretty much a lot of people's perceptions around market movement. People seem to think that small caps will move first. It's actually quite the opposite. That's been my his, my experience. Is that it's the the opposite. Usually, to get a bull move in a sector, you need to have a a big sort of a, a dominator, somebody that moves and, and and makes the headlines. It's rare that a small micro cap makes a headline. So I think you need that to get other people to come into the sector and say, hey, that one just ran, so let's go find another one that, that could run as well. Now, the challenge, of course, with all this is, as you alluded to, right, it goes back to that illiquidity. So if you want to try to establish a position, you certainly can't do a market order, right, because no. God knows what yeah. price you're going to get, right? So, so yeah. talk, talk about that because I think this is this is important. A lot of people are used to the idea of getting in and out quickly, even though they, they yeah. may claim to be long-term investors, you know, with the moment price yeah. goes down, they're not, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so talk about some of those, those execution techniques that you follow. Okay, so yeah, 100%, you're right. The liquidity, if you can't embrace the liquidity in the microcap space, you're going to have a hard time making real real good money here. You, you've got to really sort of, illiquidity is your friend if you, if you treat it properly. One of the things that we do actually, and this is, this is because of my experience in the industry and just, you know, we, we've got a bit of, girth as a membership but sometimes what we'll do is we'll actually go directly to company if we find something that we like we'll go to the company and we'll see if there's an opportunity to buy a box of stock or or to do a financing if if either they need it or we think it's in their best interest so we can we can generate some buy side liquidity by having a relationship with the company and doing something that way the the other sort of way of doing it is you, you know patience it's just like anything else if 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 it's good enough you 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 know you have to be patient enough to 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 sit on a bid and, and wait for your turn. It can be painful waiting for it, but, and, and some of these are, they're discounted enough where, you know, maybe you're not sitting on a bid, but you're you're a little bit more aggressive and you're taking out offers. A lot of, you know, a lot of experience in missing, you know, some of these deals by a penny or two because of trying to be a little too cheap and not stepping up and saying, okay, this stock is so significantly cheap that I'll, I'll pay up for it. So it really depends on your timeline. It depends on your, your psychology, you know, your mental makeup, which is a big deal as well in the micro cap space. But there are ways of, of sort of, you know, getting around that illiquidity issue on the on the buy side. But you know, selling is is the other you know half the battle, I guess. And uh, if you're buying the wrong company, then illiquidity is your last your last problem to to worry about. So I remember seeing a lot of studies that argued that diversification kind of magically happens around the 30 stocks in a portfolio level, although it was never quite clear how industry and sector concentration plays into that. But mm-hmm. when you when you think about having a diversified portfolio of microcaps, how many companies do you need? Because again, there's going to be a lot more idiosyncratic risk relative to mid or large cap companies. So, I, and so my advice to a lot of investors is you really understand your your mental makeup as an investor to determine what your portfolio is really going to look like. I have no problem being concentrated, but that's because I do a lot of work and I really understand the companies that I get involved with. And, and quite frankly, I, I try to put in as much of a margin of safety as I possibly can. So for me, diversifying my portfolio is not really, it's not something I, I, I strive to do. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to concentrate on the best, sort of the best assets I have in my portfolio and you know, I'll, I'll stomach that risk and I'll stomach the volatility because I've just I've, I've been doing it for so long. For me, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not afraid of concentration. It, it's I sort of treat it as if I'm buying a private business. If I'm going to go and buy a private business that I want to operate and run, I mean, that's that's extreme concentration. So you know, the the level of due diligence and, and confidence I have in the positions I take allows me to do that. Now, I I, I may have 30 or 40 stocks in my portfolio, but you know, the top five are probably going to make up, you know, anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of my portfolio. OK, so that, that actually that, that is quite a bit of concentration. OK, so that, that's an interesting mm-hmm. thing then, because, as you know, there are a lot of studies that show that one's conviction level increases the moment they hit the buy button. Right. It's certainly right. And, yep. and, and, and that, so, so you have this kind of strange dilemma where there is a you have to have no you have to know your shit when it comes to these companies. You have to be fully yes. aware of yeah. every single dynamic because you're taking an illiquid bet. But at the same time. Yeah, it, 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 that length of time, which could be sunk cost fallacy with hindsight if it's a loss, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. be problematic in terms of you reassessing if the conditions are changing. So be clear, like I when when I start a position, I start a, a relatively small starter position, and it's it's interesting the way you sort of described it. But I get more interested in the stock after I own some, right? So I will do more due diligence. Again, this is my mental makeup, right? This is just the way I I'm wired. But I do more due diligence after I own a small piece of the company than I do before. 
So part of that, you know, owning 30 stocks and, and small positions and a bunch of stocks is just that. I want to own a little bit. So I've got, you know, some sort of vested interest in making sure I'm really understanding what's going on. And then ideally what I want to do is I want to continue to find a reason to own more stock. So I'm constantly looking for a reason to own more stock. And if, if I can't find that reason, then chances are I'm going to I'm going to let that go or I'm going to you know maintain a small position along the way. But the, the biggest wins I've had and some of the biggest mistakes I've had is not doubling down on my winners, right? Increasing my position and in, in the stuff that is working. I think that's another, I think, mistake that investors make is that they, they, they try to buy as much as they can of a new idea. And then their goal after that is just to sell it whenever it goes up. I think the, the better way to approach it, and certainly the successful microcap investors I talk to, they all seem to do it the same way. You want to start a position, you want to find a reason to keep adding to it because they're executing. Yeah, that, that, that's been my experience. But it's interesting, right? Because if you get if you end up having selected a, a, a 10, 20, 30 bag, or now it's no longer microcap, it might be midcap, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, do you... Because that's going to be part of the game, right? Even from a VC model, you're always you're going to have one company that that drives the entire portfolio's performance. But yeah. the 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 more that happens, the more risk there is, obviously, to the entire portfolio because it's a bigger and bigger weighting. So, yeah. how do you think about that dynamic, right? I, I I have to imagine that if you've invested in a good company, you want it to go to be large cap status, but you're not going to say to yourself, "Well, you know, I'm a, at the core, you're a micro cap investor, so." You'd, uh, you'd sell it. Yeah. Well, so it, it's a little bit less about the, the size of the company, more about how the company's performing. You know, as a company gets bigger, its rate of growth slows down just because of, you know, a lot of big numbers. So there's there's a fair bit of that involved. But the other dynamic that happens in microcaps is that you get, when you get what we call discovery, when a microcap goes from being unknown to being relatively well-known, the valuation starts to creep up. You know, the, the the PE and all the other valuation metrics start to creep up. And at some point you get to the point where you're sitting there going, you know what, I've got better opportunities elsewhere. So I'm going to start to peel some of this off, right? So it, it does have a self rebalancing mechanism when you've got that. Like my my job, I, I what I sort of tell myself every day is I'm coming in every morning to try to find something that is better than something that's in my portfolio. And, and because I'm doing that on a regular basis, I do. When, when I get this stock that's, you know, starting to get discovered, you know, it might be on CNBC or BNN up here in Canada or, you know, research analyst starts to cover. When that starts to happen, I think the multiple expansion is, you know, almost as far as it's gone. So you lose that lever. So I tend to be, I tend to be a seller when I, you know, when I see the, the stock get mentioned on TV or gets some analyst writes it up. That's when I start to look at, okay, you know, that that valuation is probably getting close to as good as it gets. So yes, it may continue to grow, but I want I want that double lever of multiple expansion and and growth. So now I'm going to try to look at the next best one in my portfolio and maybe downsize the big one and and add more to my smaller one. Me, yeah, reset the room for celebrity. Please make sure you follow uh, Paul here on Twitter. And again, this will be available as a podcast under Lead Lag Live probably in a week or so. All right. So, so Paul, I, in one of the threads here, somebody said that Canadian stocks are impossible to invest in because of Trudeau. Uh, which, <laughs> which is a funny thing to say, but, but it is interesting, right? Because a lot of my audience is from the States. I'm in, I'm in New York yeah. myself. And, you know, there's obviously there's naturally home bias. And then you have all these insane things that we are seeing, right? In terms of yeah. uh, talk about just for a moment, how the Trudeau administration factors into Canadian markets and if it should scare or not scare people? I think a little bit of what you had mentioned earlier. I think the the U.S. sort of the U.S. government, U.S. Fed has probably more impact on the economics in Canada than than our own government does. So I, I I'm I'm not look, I'm, I'm not a Trudeau fan, but I don't really think there's much outside of the the energy and some certain industries outside of that area where I think they've really made you know blunders. I don't think there's much of an impact on uh, certainly on microcaps. Yeah, you know, like I said, I think there's a bigger impact with with economics down in the U.S. Again, most of these microcaps are niche niche businesses. They have they might dominate a certain niche that is more influenced by what's happening within that niche. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. All right, let's talk about some interesting opportunities that you're seeing Mm -hmm. locally. Are there certain industries that are showing uptick? Are there certain stocks that are particularly interesting? Talk through some of the things that you've been noticing. Yeah, so so a couple of things that we've noticed is probably the easiest one we've seen over the last little while is the, the, the life science space up in Canada. It's very, very, what's the word, underanalyzed. And there's assets here that if they're if they were sort of properly listed in the U.S., would probably trade three, four times what they're currently trading at. So there's there's that component. The other thing that I mentioned earlier was the the telecom manufacturing opportunities. There's a couple of companies here. Now there, there's one one stock, for example, we we were buying. We first recognized it when it was at twenty cents about two years ago. That that stock's hit four fifty uh, about a week ago. So, you know, there, there's there's industries and it's still trading at single digit price earnings multiples. So those type of companies are the ones we're, we're looking at. So we're finding success in, like I said, life sciences, manufacturing. A lot of it's almost like capital intensive businesses seem to be doing better than capital light businesses. And I think a big part of that is just the valuations. But hold, but hold, um, that's interesting, yeah. though, because it's like I, I would think capital intensive businesses would maybe have a hard time because it means they need to leverage up and take on debt. And as the cost of capital rises, right, that's going to be problematic. You'd think, but I think the argument on the other side is that there's very little new competition. So they're not seeing competition because, you know, where, where's a new competitor going to go and get his capital and, and, and be able to sort of compete properly? So I think, I think that's a big thing. This idea of onshoring, this idea of manufacturing coming closer to home, I think that's, that's a big play here. And when you think of Canada, again, with the currency being hit as hard as it is, you know, we we sort of have, you know, a bigger market to sell into with a lower cost base. So I think it's all I'm telling you is that that's where we're seeing value right now. We've seen some real good moves in that space. And, and that's what I think it is. It's just the fact that, you know, you're just not seeing competition, new competition against these companies because of that, that hurdle of, of capital they've got to go and get. No, and actually, that onshoring point is valid. I mean, I've I've gone on record saying I'm I'm skeptical of of some of these narratives around onshoring because you know companies are and CEOs are greedy, right? They want to get more margin. Mm-hmm. So yes, you want to have redundancies, but I don't know if you're going to see total deglobalization the way that people are presenting it. But are are there any policies that are have recently been enacted or that might be enacted which maybe become more favorable for Canada from a friendshoring, onshoring perspective? Because I think a lot of people are assuming that a lot of the stuff is going to come into the U.S., but it could just be Canada is the real beneficiary. Well, I, I think, you know, the driver of, of a lot of a sort of movement for manufacturing is, is probably twofold, right? S- security of supply, right? Certain certain products are, you know, deemed more, you know, more critical than others, but energy. So, you know, our, our cost of energy in Canada is significantly lower, I think, what you guys have down there. So, you know, manufacturing facility that has some sort of critical components that needs energy is that's next door to the largest economy in the world. I think it makes a lot of sense for these manufacturing facilities to show up here in Canada. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think there's there's a big opportunity there. As far as policies, no, I mean, you know, governments are governments. They they, they come up with crazy policies at any time. I'm not really aware of any that uh, you know. Again, apart from the, the the sort of stuff that that's been holding back some energy investment. I'm not aware of any sort of manufacturing policies or or trade policies that are, you know, that, that are too restrictive right now. All right. So one of the things which I think freaks people out when we talk about Canada is property values, is housing. Yeah. Uh, right. And you, you mentioned <laughs> Vancouver. I know Vancouver is kind of an yeah. open world in terms of, you know, the, these kind of prices. But just for a moment, talk about the state of the housing market in Canada and perhaps more importantly, the knock-on effects, you know, how severe they they could be, right, when it comes to Canadian yeah. stocks and the microcaps in particular. Yeah, I, I think real estate is really localized. I think 
in a lot of ways. You know, yes, you, there's headlines of Vancouver and Toronto and, and some of the big cities with, you know, crazy, crazy real estate prices. But if you get out into some of the suburbs, it's, you know, it's nowhere near as bad. If, you know, I live on the West Coast here. You know, we, we've got, you know, Vancouver Island, for example. There's a lot of construction going on there. Prices are nowhere, is nowhere near what they are in Vancouver. But it's driven by this retirement boom. Nobody wants to sort of retire in Ontario with the winters that, that are there. Everybody seems to be moving over here. So it's it's a localized sort of event where prices are very firm. Most of the buyers are retirees that sold the house for however many millions in, in Ontario and are buying one here for cash. So if you're looking at that market, it's different than a downtown Vancouver market where, you know, it's... The, the 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 prices are crazy like it's it's insane but and i would clearly expect that you're going to see a weakness because of the higher interest rates but but again yeah it's it's localized go to calgary and calgary with the boom in energy you know it's a different market there so it really kind of depends on where you're at now what what it does to sort of microcaps or investing I think it does what it normally does. The wealth effect or, you know, the change in the valuation of your home, or if you can't, you can't pay a mortgage payment. The last thing you're going to do is is buy a microcap stock. So again, whatever the reason is, there's there's probably more than just the ones I've mentioned, but the microcap space right now, in my mind, if you're a buyer, you're kind of alone in the woods and that, that gives you the maximum mispricing. So that's that's the way I see it right now. Is, is there's just for whatever reason there's not a lot of competitors bidding against me when I'm buying some of these uh, these microcaps. But again, you mentioned I think you only have a, a few stocks in the portfolio and you heavily weight them and against the backdrop of a huge universe. So uh, when you when you've got your portfolio made up and you say to yourself, okay, this is what I'm gonna stick to. This is what I know. Mm-hmm. You, do you basically just stop looking at other companies? Uh, well, you know, because that's that's always to me interesting, right? Because it's always yeah. it's kind of you almost get analysis paralysis if you if you have yeah. uh, too many things to look at. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, so I I've got this system that I've been using off and on now for for probably 20 years. So I I do it. It's almost part of my daily routine. But like I said earlier, I the the goal here is to try to find something to replace one of the stocks in my portfolio. So I'm always trying to find the next great one. It's it, there's a bit of a game in it for me, right? I, I'm trying to find something before everybody else does. When when you have the kind of wins that I've I've been fortunate enough to have in the past, you're constantly you're you're addicted to it, right? You're 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 prepared to go and and look for the next one. And, and that's kind of what it is. I'm I'm not afraid to get rid of one of the stocks in my portfolio if I find something better. And that, that's part of the, the reason, actually, probably the biggest reason I might sell something in my portfolio has less to do with that individual stock and more to do with what the opportunity cost is if, if I find something else. So I'm constantly looking for something new. And you had used that line earlier in the conversation that uh, I think the, the most number of opportunities or that you've seen, I think you said in, in 15 years, does that does that make you just take take the microcap aspect of it for a moment? When mm-hmm. you see that, does that make you think that the macro environment is going to really start to turn and surprise people positively? That that there's an overreaction to the negative narrative that's out there. Yeah, I, I do think that the the average investor, the majority of the average investors, is are too negative right now. Everything is a, a function of price, right? Now, I I agree with a lot of the you know, the commentators that say, you know, the, the economy is going to get worse. Earnings are likely to go down. The stock, you know, certain stocks are likely to go down. That makes a lot of sense to me and, and why I'm not buying anything, you know, in the large cap space, because I think they're they're still egregiously overpriced. But that doesn't mean all stocks are overpriced. So I go, when I see stuff that I'm seeing right now, that, like I said, single, mid single digit price earnings ratios growing at 30, 40, 50% a year, well, you know, strong balance sheets, some cases buying back their own stock. I mean, those those things don't happen in a bull market, right? They they happen in these type of these type of opportunities. So I I'm I'm gonna keep looking for them. And like I said, once you've it's it's almost like crack cocaine. You you get one of these things that turns into a hundred bagger and I'm telling you, you're gonna keep looking for these things over and over again. Well hopefully you're not talking from experience. Just no, <laughs> no, actually <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. Oh no, but, but hold on. That's interesting. This this point about large caps being egregiously overpriced because you can make the same argument in the states. Now the the dilemma 
is and I, I this is actually I'm I'm curious myself about this. So in the U.S., there you know there are these these default investments that go into essentially Vanguard large cap funds. Right, yep. a portion of your paycheck yep. goes into that automatically. People don't even realize it or think about it. It's the default option. Is there a similar? I've used the term structural insanity. This kind of automated mm-hmm. bid that happens in the states. Is there a similar mm-hmm. dynamic when it comes to you know Canadian large cap equivalents for for citizens? Yeah, you know, I, I think there is, but like everything in the States is 10 times bigger than, than in Canada. So I always sort of view it that way. We, we very similar structure here in Canada, especially as you get bigger into the bigger and bigger companies. And quite frankly, most of the big companies here in Canada are dual listed in the U.S. So they, they sort of participate through your system anyway. But yeah, I mean, you go down market and it's, it's really a completely, completely different market and system. So, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think the, the big caps, you know, the, you know, that's the sort of the ETF type of investing or passive investing. It goes more to liquidity and size than it does to, to pure value. So you get that up here as well. No, and I, I, I emphasize that because I think that's that's important because a lot of people, I, I think, are justified in, in being bearish longer term when you look at valuations for large cap stocks overall in the states. But Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily myself believe that's indicative of the entire quote unquote market because again there is this this complicating factor of this mechanical buying that happens for those for those mega cap companies right so it's not mm-hmm. really a pure tell on the health of the underlying system just like most people would say the bear market really started December January when yeah. they looked at the large cap averages when it really started February of 2021 right yeah. it's it, it is interesting that you have a tale of Two markets, not just in the states, but also in Canada, from what I'm hearing as well. No, exactly, exactly. I agree with you, 100. The, there's, there's the market is made up of stocks, right? The, the stock market is a market of stocks, and there's subsectors and companies within subsectors. They, they all act differently. I, I mean, I remember, you know, in 2001, after the, you know, the, the towers, you know, the terrorist incident in the towers. I remember how the market had shut down, and everybody sort of went out believing that. The, the sort of the world was going to end and, you know, everything was different from here on in and, and most stocks were going to go into, you know, a bear market, but there are always companies that are trying to solve a problem that is causing sort of the issue around the world, right? There's, if, you know, look, look at energy, for example, you know, if, if something is causing a problem, there's going to be a company trying to fix it. And I, I saw a lot of that during, you know, actually during all sorts of different troubled times. So if, if you know what you're doing, you can find that outlier company that's going to do actually better because of the conditions of the, the world or the conditions of the market. And we saw it with the pandemic, right? All of a sudden, you know, Zoom calls and, and everything that, that wasn't in vogue before became in vogue. And, you know, the stocks went crazy and, and then eventually fundamentals had to kick in. But there, there's there's always opportunity. That's a, that's kind of what I'm getting at here is that in the microcap space, because they're so dominated by innovative companies, you always tend to find stuff that will go counter to the market. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I rarely, rarely hedge in any meaningful way. Like some of, some of these stocks that we're buying or, or the majority of the ones that I have larger positions in, I, again, I... I believe I'm buying with a margin of safety, right? We're able to buy stocks at, at you know what we think is deep discounts to what their what their true value is. So it's not, you know, I, I the the risk is more in the the volatility. It's it's not even I wouldn't even necessarily say it's a risk. So I watch for those pullbacks. I watch for an opportunity to buy as long as the company continues to execute. But hedging, you know, in the microcap space, it's very very difficult to hedge because it's not necessarily. You know, it doesn't it doesn't correlate with the rest of the market a lot of times. So the 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 way you mitigate the risk is by doing two things: buying as cheap as you can and understanding the business as, as much as you can. That's that's really the only way I find you can minimize the risk here. No, no, and I will add it's it's actually an interesting point, right? It's like if you're a real long term investor, you actually shouldn't be hedging at all, right? Because you're believing mm-hmm. in what you're investing. The price today doesn't matter so much as the price many many mm-hmm. years from now. Well, Michael, I mean, again, if you were going to go out and buy a coffee shop or you're going to go buy a you know a small business, think think of the due diligence you go through to do that and think of the conviction you have to have to go and, and buy that business outright. If you take that same sort of approach to investing in these micro caps, and they're, they're, they're just that, they're, they're small businesses. If you take that approach, you have to have a longer time frame and you have to have a much more critical eye 
And the, the hedging really is the protection you're going to get is by, by buying it as cheap as you can and making sure you're buying the right business. Yeah, no, and I would add like the, look, we, we, we lose money on the investments we make as well, but the, the, the risk that we take on or the, the, the losses we tend to take because of the type of companies we're investing in is nowhere near as high as you see in the sort of the typical venture capital model. So it, it's not unusual to see a 40 or 50% drawdown on a company that doesn't work out. But you're offsetting it with, in some cases, a company that's returning 20, 30, 50 X, right? So we will take that risk because as a, as a sort of, you know, portfolio, the, you know, that, that asymmetric risk is something we're willing to take. And you can, you can mitigate it by just making sure you're buying stuff with that margin of safety. So we, I mean, like a lot of these companies, we, we've got companies right now that are moving counter to the market. We've had, you know, three or four stocks in the last little while, they're hitting new 52 highs while the markets are, are going in the opposite direction. You can't really, you can't hedge against them because these, these things are really, they're, they're running their own business. They're, again, they're niches. They, they operate in, a, in an industry that doesn't necessarily, you know, parallel what's going on in the rest of the economy. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a fair point. This was a great conversation, everyone. Please make sure you follow Paul Andreola. Paul, any final thoughts or any other pearls of wisdom you want to leave the audience with before we wrap up here? You know, listen, I mean, I think I think the microcap space, especially the Canadian microcap space, we've done a lot of work comparing Canadian microcap space and U.S. microcap space. There's a lot of fantastic opportunities right now that are available for the for the retail investor that wants to do the work. There's a big advantage for retail investors and smaller investors to be able uh, to sort of take advantage of here in the small space. And, you know, I, th- I think that's something that, they, you know, everybody should consider. And, you know, some of the biggest investors in history all start off the microcap space. So if, if you do it right here, you do very well. And there's there's life changing wealth that being, uh, can be created. So. So yeah, and if anybody wants to ask me more questions, you know, they certainly feel free to reach out. And if there's any questions around the Canadian microcap space at all, I'm willing to answer whatever I can. Very good. Thank everybody for joining. Appreciate it. And I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Paul. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.